0: This is an affiliate promotion, meaning we may earn a commission if you take advantage of this fantastic deal. Act fast, preserve your history, and save big with Go Digital at ScanMyPhotos.com. Hi, I'm Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. I really love family photographs, all of them, from the mystery images you find in shoeboxes and albums to the pictures you snap with your digital devices. No mystery is too small. A simple question about an image can lead to new stories of your ancestors. This means you can count on me to help you identify the people in them, offer solutions for preserving and organizing them, and yes, even guide you in the various ways to gather and share picture stories with your relatives. It doesn't take hindsight to realize you're living in historic times. This last year has taught us that. This week's guest told me that the residents of Lexington and Concord immediately recognized the significance of April 19, 1775, and saved pieces to document that day. A few years ago, the Concord Museum in Concord, Massachusetts, assembled a temporary exhibit called The Shot Heard Round the World. It was an amazing display of ordinary and extraordinary bits of history, now they've created a permanent exhibit of the same name. The Concord Museum is one of my favorite museums, but don't worry if you can't travel to see it. Their website is worth exploring. Concord Museum was the first cultural institution to be officially recognized by the U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission for this shot-heard-round-the-world the world microsite. we have plenty of time before the 250th celebration in 2026 to explore the offerings of the Concord Museum. David F. Wood has been the curator at the Concord Museum since 1985. He has published the Concord Museum, Decorative Arts from a New England Collection, and An Observant Eye, the Thoreau Collection at the Concord Museum, which won the American Association of State and Local History Leadership in History Award, and the Historic New England Honor Book Award for 2007. He has also published a variety of other articles regarding cabinet making, and clockmaking in Concord, Massachusetts. My guest today is David Wood. He's the curator at the Concord Museum in Concord, Massachusetts. David, thank you so much for joining me on The Photo Detective.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
0: I have fond memories of the Concord Museum. A a number of years ago, there was a special exhibit of people that were featured in my last muster books. And then on the other gallery was an exhibit called Shot Heard Around the World.
1: Right. And the, uh, in uh, many ways, that exhibition, Shot Heard Round the World, was a sort of pilot for what we are just opening at the museum. So we follow that format to a considerable degree. And we have the best, most extensive, most varied collection of objects that actually participated in the events of that day. The, and that's what we're highlighting in, in the gallery. And we use that collection, it's really extensive enough that we can narrate the entire day, not quite minute by minute, but pretty close, using real objects that were actually there. And these objects are associated with people that we know, which is why the the last muster was such a, a great adjunct to the exhibition before, because in one or two instances, maybe Ebenezer Hubbard is an example, the same individual could be found in both contexts. And that's just remarkable.
0: Yes, it is nice because you get the face and the object.
1: So the uh, Museum
0: of the American Revolution in Philadelphia is getting a lot of publicity these days, but you, your museum, the Concord Museum has been around for a very long time now.
1: Yes. And the the museum was established as a museum in 1886. It was actually a collection before that, but the town determined that the collection was worth preserving. And in fact, the collector was worth preserving. That was Cummings Davis. Um, And Davis, from the very beginning, had seen as a significant part of his mission, the events at the North Bridge. That really was an epical moment. And the astonishing thing is that people at the time, knew it. Emerson, for instance, says in his uh, journal, this month, remarkable for the greatest events of the present era. So within days, he knew that. It was not lost on him. They had, you know, something extraordinary had happened. And as I said, people in Concord knew that, basically on April 20th, and it's in a way never dissipated. That and that really informed Davis's collecting. He put together what he called a sacred collection. And he really meant that. And that's what we get to work with now in interpreting the events of the of April 19th. Well
0: I know your website is a great resource for people that are researching the American Revolution. So you can search and find objects that are in your collection and learn something about them. And then now you have a virtual exhibit for people that can't come to the museum that I believe is renowned right now for what you've done. So do you wanna talk a little bit about this micro exhibit that Uh, you have online?
1: Yeah, we have a, a microsite that goes with the exhibition and it includes some of the media pieces that Richard Lewis Media Group put together for us. One of the best elements in the exhibition, apart from the first-person objects that were actually there, is the animation that RLMG did of the DaCosta map. So the DaCosta map was produced in London in December of 1775 and was simply intended to show here's what happened. And it's a good map. We use that as a resource to just go through the whole day chronologically. And there's a tremendous amount of data in there that is in just seven minutes, you can get the whole story. So that's a good resource, one that I know teachers are already taking good advantage of. But that in conjunction with the other material, the objects, and, and they each have uh, their own stories to tell, they work together nicely. And on the microsite, they uh, can both uh, be found uh, together. Of course, there's nothing like seeing the real exhibition itself. It's just that it's not that easy these days, but we're looking forward to live audiences again.
0: Yes, we all are looking forward to being part of a live audience. <laughs> <laughs> so this is now permanent in a couple of galleries. Let's just go through the events of April 19th, 1775, okay? Sure. Where does this exhibit start? What's the kickoff moment?
1: Well, because we happen to have it in the collection, and also because it's the right place to start this narrative, we begin with the lantern, one of the two lanterns that was used as a signal. This is a signal that was arranged by Paul Revere actually a week before this event, because Revere knew everybody knew that that this raid was going to happen i'm getting ahead of the story in a way but we really are just talking about april 19th so for this exhibition it does begin at 10 o'clock at night on april 18th when this lantern was lighted as a signal to tell the militia in charlestown which way the British regular troops were gonna go out on the raid that everybody knew was going to happen. And that was an important piece of, of data. Revere wanted to make sure that everybody knew how it was going to go. He knew that he was going to be riding alarm, but he also knew there was a real good chance he wasn't going to make it. For one thing, in under the light of a waxing gibbous moon, he had to row under the 60 guns of the HMS Somerset. So right off the bat, There's a good chance he's not going to make it across. But he did make it. And the signal also worked. So the lantern signal worked. Revere got across and began spreading the alarm in person, heading first for Lexington. He very nearly got captured on the way to Lexington, had to make a a diversion. And then after he had informed Hancock and Adams what was going on, he did get captured. Revere got captured. And he got released and he went right back at it. He went right back to Lexington and picked up a heavy trunk full of John Hancock's papers. John Hancock was president of the Provincial Congress, which was meeting in Concord and doing the planning for the provincial side of this story. Revere picked up that trunk of papers that you can be pretty sure are a hanging offense to be, uh, to be caught with. And as he was crossing Lexington Common, the firing began. So that's kind of where we begin the story. We begin the story with Paul Revere's contribution.
0: Well, you know, I think when kids are in school and they're learning about April 19th, it's hard to see it as a tangible moment. It's a historic moment, but it's pretty far in the past if you're 10, 12, 15, 16 years old, right? It's an event, it happened, it's old, it passed, you know? oh my goodness. But then when you're in the museum and you're looking at the artifacts, I think those artifacts convey history in a way that just a word on a page does not. Like here you are, you're learning about Paul Revere and here's the lantern, the actual lantern. Or when I was at the museum and saw the temporary rooms that you had set up for the shot heard around the world a couple of years ago, I remember standing in front of a door. (laughs) And I remember thinking, who would save a door? There's a bit of serendipity involved in all of this. But obviously, as you said earlier, people knew that this was a momentous event, and that they wanted to save the things from that right away. So, I mean, a door. Who would save a door for 200 years or more? Right.
1: right. And that door, that was the door from James Barrett's house, and about a mile outside of town. And Barrett was in all of this stuff up to his uh, neck. So, as I said, our, our exhibition really begins... Uh, with April 19th itself, a little before midnight. But there's a backstory, obviously. And the backstory is that after the Port of Boston was shut down by Parliament, this provincial Congress was convened. And it's, and as I said, they were part of the time they were meeting in Concord. And they were making decisions for, you know, for the colony without consulting the military governor in Boston. So this is an extra legal body, but they were very active. And one of the very first things they did was establish committees of supply. And the Provincial Congress voted with John Hancock as president. They voted while they were meeting in Concord to raise supplies for an army of 15,000, an army that was meant to stay in the field, not a a flash army of 15,000 that would then disband. This was meant to be an army. And the spear point for that activity in Concord was James Barrett. And he was arranging with various correspondents across the state for supplies to come in. An army of 15,000 takes a lot of supplies. So we're talking about tons and tons of material. And it might be uh, flints for a flintlock, it might be gunpowder, it's bullets, it's cannonballs, it's cannon, it's bread, it's dried fish, it's tents. That's what they're assembling, tremendous amounts of material and they're storing it in Concord. A lot of it is stored at Barrett's farm and Gage knew it was here and because he had his spies, and the Provincial Congress knew that Gage knew it was here because the Provincial Congress had their spies. So it was really a question of when. It was There was no doubt that there was going to be a raid to capture these supplies. That It was a dangerous. It was a clear and present danger to the troops in Boston that the Provincial Congress is, is arming an army of 15,000. That's why Barrett's House was a target, and that's the door at Barrett's House On one side of that door, you imagine Mrs. Barrett, James Barrett was out in the field at the time. Mrs. Barrett's on one side of the door and 100 British regulars are on the other side of the door. A pretty intense moment. And the door stayed in the house until the last private owner, Barrett owner of that house, sold the house around 1905 and moved and kept that door. The door had been Uh, relocated but the door was kept and then eventually came to us at the Concord Museum but again as you were saying about the lantern that's the real thing that is the door that's how thin the difference between being safe in your home and being accosted by an army that's how thin the barrier was on that morning.
0: Well it's always surprising as a historian about what parts of history get saved and which get tossed over time and you know how we tell the story through those objects. So what's the most unusual piece in the exhibit?
1: Well, one of the things that I'm especially fond of because it's the objects itself that tell the story, and that's a group of flints, gun flints. So these are flintlocks that they're using as firearms and that you have to take a piece of flint and put it in the jaws of a hammer and that makes sparks and that's what makes the gunpowder go off. So the British regulars do, they come out, Revere spreads the alarm successfully. Concord actually knew that the regulars were on the way before the regulars had even left Lechmere. So they rode across the Charles River to Lechmere and then they were stalled there for a couple of hours. But by two o'clock in the morning, Concord knew they were on the way. And so you can imagine the church bells are, are ringing. And when church bells ring at two o'clock in the morning, that's not a good sign. That's an alarm. And everybody knew that. And the regulars came out. They came into the center of Concord, began looking for supplies. But even before that, the first thing they did was took control of the bridges. You want to take control of the bridges of the town so people can't come in and people can't go out. So they sent a, a couple of companies, about 100 men out to the North Bridge. Sent another hundred men across the bridge out to Barrett's farm. Another hundred men are at the South bridge, but there's a hundred men at the North bridge. But by this time, now it's maybe eight o'clock in the morning, there are 400 provincial troops gathered on the slope overlooking the North bridge in view of the hundred regular troops who are guarding the bridge, and while they're standing there, they changed the flints on their muskets. And we know that because an archaeologist, Ben Smith, in 1934 noticed that the muster field, that's what it's called, that, that field where the provincials mustered before the affair at the bridge, the muster field was plowed for the first time in Ben Smith's long memory, and he knew that that meant as soon as it rains, there will be artifacts on the surface. What Ben Smith collected were stone artifacts of the native people who lived in this area. That's what he was looking for. But what he found instead was two rows of flints, about 100 flints. And it's known from other sources that the adjutant of the day, Joseph Hosmer, had lined up the provincial troops in two lines, the Minutemen in one line and the militia in another. So every town had militia. That's part of your Service as an adult male is to serve in the militia. But in the lead up to the revolution, these other companies were formed, the minute companies, younger men generally meant to respond at a minute's notice to an alarm. As I said, everybody knew this alarm was coming. It's just when. So the minute men are in one line, the militia are in another line, and they change their flints and drop the flints right at their feet And that's the way Smith found them in two lines. And it's a terrifically audacious thing to do to change your flints while the enemy's looking at you. The reason you change your flint is so that the next time you pull the trigger, your musket has a better chance of going off. A fresh flint makes more sparks, you get your ignition. And so this was, it wasn't exactly taunting, I wouldn't say, but it was a remarkable thing to do in the face of the enemy to just sort of calmly change your flint, drop it right at your feet. Those things astonished me. I look at those flints and I realize some individual pinched that between thumb and forefinger and dropped it at his feet. And we know who these guys were. Who was it? You know, was it, maybe it was Casey Minot, the enslaved man who was there at the North Bridge. Maybe it was Joseph Hosmer himself who dropped it. Maybe it was Captain Davis from Acton who dropped it and who was killed at, in the first round of firing. You, you just don't know, but that's the real Flint. If somebody did that. Somebody dropped it at his feet. So those kind of astonished me because this changing of the Flints is not recorded anywhere else lining people up in two lines, yeah, that's recorded somewhere else. But the changing of the flints, it's only the flints that tell us that story and the way they were found.
0: So how many objects are in this new exhibit that's opening this spring?
1: Good question. Don't know the answer. But more than you'll find anywhere else, I can say that. There are five muskets that were Actually, at the bridge or engaged on April 19th, five powder horns that were there, and in two instances, musket and powder horn from the same individual. Ooh. That's like Amazing. I don't think any other collection can do that for an April 19th musket and powder horn. Maybe there's one out there, but I don't know what. And then many, many other objects. Two of, the, <coughs> two of the cannonballs that were thrown into the mill pond, that was the assignment for the regulars, was destroy these supplies and then those cannonballs were found in the middle of the 19th century. And Henry Thoreau noticed that they were found, recorded it in his journal. Everybody knew as soon as they came out, knew exactly what they were. And they survive in this collection. There are there are more than 100 objects in, in this and in the two satellite galleries associated with it. And as I said, they're all first person. They were all there. And we know who these objects are uh, properly identified with. So how do you end the exhibit with a nod to the republic that was formed out of this revolution. So we give the last word to an artist. We let Daniel Chester French have the last word with his Minuteman of 1775. We have courtesy of the US Navy the reduced size bronze that French was commissioned as a gift to the nation from the the town of Concord in 1870 in 1886 when A gunboat Concord was commissioned, and this bronze served aboard that gunboat in the Bay of Manila in 1898, and then served on two subsequent gunboats Concord until that gunboat fired the last salvo of World War II up in the Sea of Okhotsk and this bronze was there. So that bronze is featured in the last gallery, and included in there is a plow. That plow is a reference to Cincinnatus, the Republican tyrant of Rome, who was appointed tyrant in an emergency. When you're tyrant, you have complete command. It's only for 60 days, and then you step down. He only needed a week or two and he stepped down, went back to his plow. This is signaled as a remarkable thing to do all through history that you have the power and you put it down. It was very meaningful to George Washington who did the exact same thing at the end of his service. He resigned his uh, sword to Congress and said, that's it, I, I did what you asked me to do and I'm done. Uh, beautiful gesture. Very deliberate on Washington's part. Washington knew exactly what his business was. And that, as uh, you asked uh, how we ended, that's the story we end with, because in, in part to showcase our Society of the Cincinnati Porcelain. We have Benjamin Lincoln's service, who interestingly is an ancestor of the Benjamin Lincoln Smith who found mm-hmm. the Flints at the North Bridge. <clears throat> Benjamin Lincoln was one of Washington's field generals.
0: It sounds like an amazing exhibit and I can't wait to see it.
1: We will reopen to the public in early April and this exhibition will be in place. We're doing some other renovations in the museum and those will be completed late in June. So I would say by this summer, we'll be up and running top to toe and it'll be a good time to visit.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for being on The Photo Detective.
1: You're welcome.
0: Seven years later, people still ask me what's up with the last Muster movie series. Well, about two years ago, it was completed. And on my website, under projects, you can find a revolutionary trio. So if you're looking for more Revolutionary War-related content, please check out the movies. It took us a long time to make that dream a reality. It took five years from conception to completion, And perhaps you're one of the many financial backers of that project as well. We had a Kickstarter campaign. There are three films in the series. One is about Eliezer Blake of Fitzwilliam and Ringe, New Hampshire. And we made many discoveries, including an unexpected picture find that I was really excited about. The second film is about Agrippa Hull of Stockbridge, Massachusetts his portrait hangs in the Stockbridge Public Library. And the third film features Molly Ferris Aiken, an old Aiken Family Association newsletter story mentioned Molly Ferris Aiken, and we try to answer the question, did the young Quaker woman really sneak into the British encampment and fire a musket? Watch the film and let us know what you think. These films were produced, myself, and Verisma Productions. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. Leave me a rating and a review. And if you know of a friend or family member who's also interested in family photographs, share this episode with them too. See you next time.